Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with God. Make your, let your request be made known unto God, that the peace of God shall reign in our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful that we have you to come to in time of need and that you have already known about every situation, every circumstance, every difficulty in our lives. And uh, no matter what this situation may be that we face, we know that you are not surprised. It may be a shock to us. It may run counter to our hopes and dreams and plans. But we know that you are nevertheless in control and your plan is working itself out in human history. We know that you are overseeing all things and you have given us everything that we need in order to face and surmount whatever challenges or speed bumps we face along the the uh, road of life. And, Father, we know that it, we are to learn your word, internalize your word, hide it in our heart, that we might be able to apply these doctrines and the promises and the principles of Scripture to each and every situation that, that comes up. Now, Father, as we continue our study in First Peter, especially in relation to facing and handling adversity, and understanding the role of testing in our lives. We pray that we might be encouraged and strengthened this evening in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to continue with what we started last time, which was on the doctrine of suffering for blessing. And in the middle of this, we're going to have a little speed review. And for those of you for whom some of this will be new material, uh, I apologize for everybody else. It's time for you to sprint every now and then and focus and learn uh, some things and get a, a good review, but we'll get to that eventually. As a reminder, Peter is addressing this group of, of uh, primarily Jewish background believers living in the area of north-central Turkey, what is now Turkey, and he's addressing them in terms of adversity that they are facing. This is not an official... Uh, kind of persecution from the Roman Empire as much as it is that they are probably facing a lot of rejection, hostility from their fellow Jews who have not trusted in Jesus as Messiah, and that's manifesting itself not only in personal problems, breakdowns in family relationships, breakdowns in business relationships. Uh, they are uh, being excluded uh, from the community out of which they have come, and they have to uh, learn how to apply doctrine, trust the Lord, and keep moving even in spite of these difficulties and, and problems. And so when we get into the book, book itself, the letter itself, and we read about salvation, salvation is not talking about uh, getting into heaven. We have looked at the fact that in uh, God's plan of salvation, 
There's three stages. Phase one, we are saved from the penalty of sin. Phase two, we're saved from the power of sin. That's the spiritual life, what we also call experiential or progressive sanctification. And then phase three, we're saved from the presence of sin in glorification. So what Peter's talking about, just as James in James 1 is talking about the same thing, is how to experience salvation or deliverance. Here and now in phase two, from the trials, the testing, the adversity, the difficulties, the heartaches, the disappointments of life. And this is the focal point. So we have to understand this this um, basic framework. Now, this is where we look at First uh, Peter 1, 6, that we are to have joy, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. And that's that same word that's used and is translated testing in some places, just like James 1 says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, those are the same words, trials and testing. Here it talks about the fact that the genuineness of your faith is still that test of faith, the doctrine in your soul is being uh, evaluated. It's being examined to see how well we apply. It's it's taking us from from book knowledge, academic knowledge, to application, understanding how to put the principles into effect in day-to-day life. And that this testing of our faith is more valuable than, than all the wealth in the world. God looks at this as more valuable than money, more valuable than stocks, more valuable than, than uh, retirement security, more valuable than, than having a 100,000-acre ranch. Nothing can equate to the value of having our, our faith testify, uh, tested and matured because that brings eternal praise to the Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. And it focuses us on him, and he is the one who should motivate us. It's that occupation with Christ that motivates us, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet by believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory when you receive the end of your faith, that is the end of your trusting him in the difficulty, the deliverance of your life. That's the uh, corrected or expanded translation. So these verses are talking about rejoicing in the midst of the present fiery trial because our knowledge of the word and our love for the Lord Jesus for the word and our love for the Lord Jesus Christ enables us to look to a future deliverance in this life as well as in the future. So by way of review, we saw that a test is any circumstance or situation where we have to make a choice. Too often when I've taught this in the past, people have said, well, I really don't go through any big tests. Well, you, we all go every time we have a choice as to whether to obey or not obey, to rely on the Lord or rely on our own resources, that's the test. So every situation that comes along that gives us a choice, whether we're going to rely on our own resources or, or fall back to the default position of the sin nature and mental attitude sins or of anger, lust, resentment, sins of the tongue, gossip, maligning, whatever it may be, any time we fall back to that default position, then we have failed the test. When we walk by means of the Holy Spirit and apply the, the word, then we go forward. And there's all kinds of tests. This is not an exhaustive list. We have people tests, just getting along uh, with folks. That happens 
all the time, and it happens a lot in churches. And this can always be a problem because two sheep can get crossways with each other. Often, they're not significant things, but like everything else in life, two people can get together and work together as long as one person doesn't succumb to arrogance. As soon as one person succumbs to arrogance and it has to be done the way they want it done, then you have a crisis. And that happens in business. It happens in marriage. It happens in friendships. It happens in any kind of task where you have more than one person working uh, to accomplish something. And that is why arrogance is such a horrendous and destructive sin. And so the people who are around the the arrogant person have to learn to deal with them in unconditional love, learn how to uh, have a relaxed mental attitude and treat them in grace, even though they are uh, this person is acting way out of line, and that always creates problems. So that's a test in itself. You have authority tests. You're working somewhere and you have someone in authority over you that is not trustworthy or someone that's not a leader or someone that uh, always takes credit for the work that other people do. And there's a thousand different problems with authority that we could talk about. But uh, trusting uh, or obeying authority, as long as that authority is not asking you or requiring you to do something to violate the word of God, is fundamental to all areas of life. If we do not learn to be authority-oriented, then we will succumb to all kinds of problems. And that's one of the reasons parents are to discipline their children, because if children learn authority orientation in the first two to three years of life, and you don't wait until they're old enough to understand your explanation before you start teaching them authority. As soon as they disobey you at the beginning, there's some sort of negative consequence that they have to to have to face, and that's what will do them uh, great blessing for the rest of their life. You have system tests, bureaucracy tests. Uh, we run into these things all the time. Customer service tests, uh, that's another one that we run into, and we have to learn to relax and have, have humility. Somebody recently uh, shared a list of promises that they had put together with me, and one category was called customer service tests. I love it. And it was a series of promises related to the use of the tongue and speech and mostly from Proverbs. Terribly convicting, so we'll move to the next one. You run into moral tests. You run into thought tests where you uh, give in to certain kinds of thoughts. They can be immoral thoughts of sexual lust all the way to just thoughts related to power lust, related to uh, uh, revenge motivation and revenge lust, and nobody ever sees what goes on inside that thought world. It can be thoughts related to arrogance. And when you have little kids that that dwell on those things, you can't see that. I can't see that. And they dwell on those things. We don't know where that thought life is going. That can set certain patterns that the consequences of which five, ten years down the road can be devastating. So thought tests and emotional tests are extremely, extremely significant. So we go through these tests. Now, I want to review the chart. Some of you were here Tuesday night. We reviewed this. Uh, it really fits in what we're studying here in Peter, and that is this flow chart on the Christian life. We start off with salvation. We trust in Christ as Savior, and immediately we enter into the family of God as a newborn baby. 
We have to grow. We have to be disciplined. We have to be taught discipline. We have to be nourished. We have to build muscles, spiritual muscles. All of these things develop, and that's done through the, t- through the Word of God. First uh, Peter 2.2 2 is going to say that we are to desire. That's a command. We are to desire the milk of the Word that we may grow thereby. It is the Word that is the primary agent under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, that God uses to to mature us. And as we take in the Word, what we take in, what we learn, is going to be tested. And so we have these tests of faith, tests of what we believe to uh, teach us application. And the issue there is always going to be volition. It's always going to be, are we going to apply what we've learned? Are we going to keep on doing things the same way we've always done things? Now, what happens is we go through a cycle as long as we're walking by the Spirit. When we walk by the Spirit, we produce good, and this is a good of intrinsic value uh, based on the Greek word. We call it divine good because it's produced by God the Holy Spirit. It produces abundant life, and our life becomes evidence of the truth of God's Word and the value of the plan of God. We prove that the Word of God is of great value. Uh, As that's tested, it then produces a steadfast endurance, a persistence in obedience. That's what perseverance is, what my mother used to call stick-to-itiveness. We don't give up. Some days we, we do good. Some days we fail. The next day we might fail worse, but we don't quit. We keep plugging away because as long as we've got that nasty sin nature, we're always going to to struggle with it. So we have to uh, persist. And then that eventually leads to the adult spiritual life. Now, this is when we use, I didn't put the other diagram in here, but we put the diagram up here with the two circles, the one related to eternal realities and positional truth, and the other one on the right side that relates to position, our, our day-to-day experience of walking by the Spirit. We're either in the circle or we're out of the circle. This is that circle. This is what happens as we stay in the circle, walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, walking in the truth. These are the the, the various stages of growth and production that take place, including the fruit of the Spirit. On the other hand, if we uh, don't use doctrine, we don't use and apply what we've learned, that produces sin, overt sin, sins of the tongues, mental attitude sins, it produces uh, human good. We may be moral, but it's done from the flesh, not from the power of the Holy Spirit. And it produces a death-like existence. There's no real joy or happiness there. Uh, there may be a temporal joy or happiness on occasion, but long-term it doesn't produce quality life. So that's temporal death. It produces uh, spiritual weakness and instability, and eventually leads to spiritual regression and a hardened heart, hardened into negative volition uh, against God. At the end of life, at phase three, we appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and we either receive rewards and inheritance for walk, what has been produced through our walk by the Spirit, or we experience a loss of rewards and temporary shame at the judgment seat of Christ. That's the process. We have phase one, relating it back to the initial diagram. Phase two, 
and phase three in the Christian life. So that breaks it down a little bit to help us understand how this, this fits together. So this is God's plan. This is the, the overall blueprint for spiritual growth or spiritual failure. Now, the second thing that we pointed out last time was that God's training program utilizes adversity to teach us these ten spiritual skills that are needed for spiritual growth. And I pointed out that a skill is something you develop. It's something we practice. And I put up this chart. I'm not going to go through the ten spiritual skills tonight. We did that last time. We go through spiritual childhood. The first one I'm going to come back to later on. And that is confession of sin. And we go through this cycle. It's kind of amusing, and sometimes it's kind of frustrating. But we go through a cycle. I am now uh, been in some form of, of ministry for over 40 years or approximately 40 years. And I'm seeing a third cycle where people are beginning to look at 1 John 1, 9 and say, well, I'm not sure that means that we need to confess our sins every day. That means something else. And this is kind of, this pops up every now and then. That is the standard interpretation within Reformed theology. And it flows out of their interpretation of 1 John. And this is one of the things that concerns me is that, that 1 John is one of the most difficult epistles in the New Testament to interpret. And you have a whole lot of terminology there that comes out of the upper room discourse in John chapter 13 through 16. And they go together. And how you understand one impacts how you understand the other. And what I find pastors and theologians do, do not always understand, and, and I'm really speaking to the fact that there are some free grace pastors and theologians who should understand this but don't. They get wrapped around the axle on some minutia within the book that causes them to interpret this passage or that passage in an alternate way. But either everything is related to uh, a contrast between a believer or an unbeliever. That position is called the tests of faith view. That's the Reformed view. That that First John is saying, this is how you know if you're saved. If you do these things, you're saved. If you don't do these things, then you're not saved. Versus the what I'll call, for lack of a better term, the free grace view, uh, which is that John is talking about two different types of believers, those who are walking in the light versus those who are walking in darkness. They're both believers. And so you have a lot of different terms there, and everything in the book is either believer versus unbeliever or it's carnal believer versus spiritual believer. And if you go in and you take one passage from 1 John 5 or 1 John 4 and say, no, this is believer versus unbeliever, then it, it, it destroys the fabric of the entire epistle and and the, the logical consistency of the of the comparative vocabulary. Because what you'll have in one place is term A, and it's surrounded by terms B, C, and D. Now, term A may be only used twice in 1 John, but terms B, C, and D are used several other times. Well, in all of the other places that B, C, and D are used, they're talking about this contrast between a, um, a carnal believer and a spiritual believer. That means that in this one or two cases where term A is used, they also must, to be logically consistent with the language of the epistle, 
be referring to the same thing, that is, a contrast between a carnal believer and a spiritual believer. When you break that, your interpretation of the whole book falls apart, and it's going to boomerang into John 13 through 16 if you're consistent, and then that, in turn, is going to boomerang into some other passages. The Bible is laid out like a jigsaw puzzle. Okay? In that, I'm going to define what I mean by that. In that, each book is another piece of divine revelation. And you don't get the whole picture until you get the last piece in place. Now, you can get partial pictures. That's why Paul says that that we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect, that which is complete comes, then uh, that which is partial will be done away with. It's when we get the last piece of revelation in place, then we can look at that whole picture, just like you can look at the picture on a box of a, of, of a jigsaw puzzle. And so what happens is that people look at John is one, or let's say Ephesians is one piece. Galatians is another piece. John 13 through 16 is another piece. 1 John's another piece. 2 John's another piece. 3 John's another piece. Ephesians is another piece. And so what happens is you all these have to fit together. And we end up taking them apart. God doesn't tell us everything about sanctification in one spot. Now that just sets you up. I'll come back to this in a minute. So what we have here is confession, which restores us to fellowship so we can walk by the Spirit. Then we, when we're walking by the Spirit, we can trust the Lord, and God the Holy Spirit uses that to mature us, to strengthen us, and to produce fruit. At the same time, we have to be oriented to the grace of God and oriented to the Word of God. Second Peter 3.18, we're to grow by the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we master those things, we're never going to master them perfectly. We don't master them one at a time. It's like, like building a house. Sometimes you come to Bible class and I'm talking about something in Hebrews and we're focusing on occupation with Christ. And so the foundation's been laid and the framing's up, but the plumbers have just showed up. And so they're doing some plumbing and they're finishing out the third floor bathroom. And then the next week the uh, carpenters show up, but all they have time to do is put in the cabinetry in the second floor. And then the next week somebody else shows up and they do the sheetrock on the first floor and the third floor, but they didn't bring something, so it's a while before the second floor gets gets all, all the sheetrock in. That's the dynamic of how we grow. We don't grow in a logical flow chart. It's dynamic. It's messy. Okay, but that's how life is. So this is how they fit together logically, not how they fit together in terms of order. So we learn a little here, a little there, a line upon line, precept upon precept, and the Holy Spirit puts it all together in the process of our spiritual growth. So as we're mastering those basics, then we begin to fill out a little bit in terms of things we'll need to know uh, in terms of spiritual adolescence. That's when we begin to think beyond the end of our nose, as our, my mother used to say. And we plan for things that are going to impact us down the road. We quit living today in light of right now, right now. But when you live in a narcissistic culture, that's a problem because the only thing that matters is right now. And our culture feeds this kind of spiritual narcissism where it's all about me and it's all about right now. And we're not thinking in terms of next year, next month, 
uh, are not, not to speak of the judgment seat of Christ. So we have to learn to live in light of eternity. And as we grow and continue to study the word, our understanding of who God is and what he has done deepens, becomes much more robust, and our love for God matures from the love of a child to the love of a mature adult. And we come to appreciate him in ways we couldn't imagine when we were younger. And that leads us to a greater appreciation and love for other people, even the netwits, even the idiots, even the people that are there to test us so that we learn to be grace-oriented. And we focus more on Christ as we come to understand the depths of his suffering on the cross. Those three go together, personal love for God, impersonal or unconditional love for all mankind. That word impersonal doesn't mean it's not personal in terms of of um, uh, of being re- uh, a real love that you care about people. It means that you don't necessarily have a personal relationship with the person that you're demonstrating love to. You don't know the name of the cashier at the HEB. You don't know the name of the person who just cut you off on the freeway. You don't have a personal relationship with uh, uh, the people who you're dealing with on customer service. But you deal with them in love, and it's called impersonal because there's no personal relationship there. It's unconditional love. Uh, but So we're going to treat everybody that way, not as if they're just an impersonal robot. An occupation with Christ, and then this leads to and develops personal happiness in our lives. So I covered all that last time. Four spiritual skills we saw in First Peter. Joy is, re- is what's referred to as inner happiness. Faith is what we believe, that is doctrinal orientation. Love for Christ is what we refer to as occupation with Christ, and by believing is what we refer to as the faith rest drill. So, God, point number three, moving forward. God trains us through these situations which teach us to respond biblically. In doing this, we have to learn to think and not to emote. It's like going through basic training in the military or in uh, uh, going through police academy where you're constantly put in difficult situations and you can't vibrate, you can't react, you have to think and learn what the protocols are to respond to the circumstance and focus on those objective principles. So God trains us in these situations to teach us to respond biblically, to teach us uh, to think, to teach us not to just react, but to have thoughts come into our mind initially like, wonder why God brought this into my life at this point. How am I supposed to respond? What are the verses that I should be focusing on? rather than just reacting uh, reacting emotionally. Now, fourth thing, we call these spiritual skills because a skill is something that has to be practiced over and over and over again in order for it to be mastered. There are some skills that will come easier to some people than others, other skills that will come easier to you than to others. A skill is something, though, that depends upon developing self-discipline and self-mastery. To be able to do anything well, we have to make it an objective. We have to focus on it. 
We have to practice it. It's not just going to happen. Some people have gotten the erroneous view that when you're filled by means of the Spirit, that means the Spirit takes over your volition and doing the right thing is just going to naturally happen. Doing the right thing only happens as a result of our volition. A very bad word was used by some people to describe the filling by the Spirit as control. Control implies overriding the volition. It's influence, just like the sin nature influences us. But the determiner is our sin nature. The sin nature chooses to follow the influence of the sin nature or chooses to follow the influence of God the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And so we make conscientious decisions as to which way we're going to go, and we practice. We have to practice correctly because you can practice incorrectly and uh, and. It's only perfect practice that makes perfection. If you practice imperfectly, then you will only produce imperfection. So uh, perfect practice makes perfect. So we have to practice these skills to be grace-oriented. And it may be mechanical or seem mechanical at first because it's not natural. When you look at a ballerina on the stage... She has spent thousands of hours practicing those moves. And at the very beginning, they may not have felt very natural at all. And she had to break them down into the individual components and learn them in a very mechanical way. The same thing happens with piano players. The same thing happens with any musician, dancing, football players. You break any movement down into its components master each component, and then put them together gradually until it seems like it's just one fluid, natural movement. That's what we have to learn in terms of learning to confess our sins, claiming promises. It takes a long time and effort to memorize a lot of promises so that we can, and and to categorize them so that we can use them at the right time and the right opportunity Uh, For example, you could take a list of promises related to things like a soft answer turns away wrath, and you can memorize those and review them and then pick up the phone and call customer service, and while you're on hold, you continue to repeat those promises. Okay, in the Christian life, we have two options. We're either walking by the Spirit, in which case we we apply the teaching of the Scripture, or we opt for the sin nature. Those are the only two options. Now, there are some people who say, yeah, well, we have mixed motives, don't we? And we do. A little leaven, Scripture says, leavens the whole lump. Mixed motive is messes up the whole thing. So we have to learn to deal with that. And as Paul says in, in Romans 8, we have to learn to put to death the deeds of the flesh and not let that those those erroneous motives come in. So we have these two options. It's one or the other. It's not a little bit of both. And I've heard pastors teach that. I've heard theologians teach that because they don't understand the basics. You get into Galatians 5.16. Dwight Pentecost said it very well in his commentary on, on Galatians, a couple of things I read, that the way the Greek is set up there, It's mutually exclusive. You either walk by the Spirit or you're walking according to the sin nature. There's no middle ground. It's one or the other. 
As soon as you quit walking by the Spirit, the default position is not a position of neutrality. It's a position of sin nature control. And the only way out of that, uh, we believe, is to confess sin. Now, here are some parallel passages, and we'll talk about this a little more after the next point. You have these parallel phrases, to walk according to the sin nature in Galatians 5.16, walk, walking according to the flesh in Romans 8.4. Flesh is a synonym for the sin nature. It's described as walking in darkness in 1 John 1.6 and 1 John 2.11. It's called walking according to our lusts in 2 Peter 3, 3 and Jude 16. Either that or it's called uh, walking by the Spirit. This is point six, and these are the uh, opposite phrases. Walking in the light in 1 John 1, 7 and Ephesians 5, 8. Abiding in Christ, uh, John 15, 1 through 7. Uh, abiding in the light in 1 John 2, 10. Walking in the truth, 2 John 4 and 3 John 3. Walking by the Spirit, Galatians 5.16. Walking according to the Spirit, Romans 8.4. And living according to the Spirit in Romans 8.5. Now, if you notice, looking at this slide, the passages are in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the Johannine epistles, Ephesians 5, Galatians 5, in Romans 8, those are your key passages. And if I go back to point 5, we see the same passages are listed here. Galatians 5, Romans 8, 1 John 1, and 1 John 2, and 2 Peter 3, and Jude 16 are a little different. So these these are your critical passages. And, and it takes a lot of time to put all of this together and to really understand how the pieces, think about that image of a jigsaw puzzle again, once you get Galatians in place and then you get John 13 through 16 in place, and then you get uh, some passages in uh, Corinthians in place, and you get uh, Romans uh, 6, 7, and 8 in place, and then you get Ephesians 5 in place, and then you get 1 John in place, then it begins to make sense. God didn't say in one place, you need to walk according to the Spirit. When you fail and you start walking according to the sin nature, then you need to confess your sins so that you can recover. You That gets put together by once you get all the pieces in place, comparing Scripture with Scripture. And then it's all there. But God didn't give us the Word as a as a completely correlated systematic theology. What God gave us was these these epistles in the New Testament and historical books in other places and the prophets that give us all these different components. And, what, and he did it that way in order to fo- force us to stop and think and reflect. How does this fit with that? How does this go here? What does this writer mean by this? If God had just given us a systematic theology, we would read the systematic theology and say, okay, I've got all my questions answered. Let's bow our heads and go home. By putting it the way he did, it forces us to constantly go back and rethink, reevaluate, and to put it together. It forces us to constantly stay in the scriptures. And that's the idea. It's just absolutely brilliant. 
It forces, and every time we go back through this, every time I go back through this, I always learn something new and see some different and new correlations. Either that or I'm just getting older and everything old seems new again, one way or the other. So we have these these passages here. Now, let me run through this, and this is not going to be on the slide, but I'm going to put this together because a question that I've heard since I was in seminary, before I went to seminary, I can first time somebody asked me this question was the summer of 1975. Okay, that was 40 years ago. And the question was, Ephesians 5.18 talks about being filled with the Spirit. There's no mention anywhere in Ephesians of confessing sin. So how can you say that being filled by means of the Spirit is a consequence of confession? 1 John 1 talks about confessing sin in 1 John 1, 9. But there's nothing in 1 John 1 or anywhere else in 1 John that talks about being filled by the Spirit. How can you say that confession of sin is necessary to recover from sin and to be filled by the Spirit? And that's an excellent question. And it comes only when you have taken the time to compare certain aspects of Scripture. So I want to summarize this. This is going to be a... This, I've taught this before many times in a series of lessons, but we're going to run through this uh, like a speed drill, okay? That way you see the whole picture. All right, first of all, John chapter 15. We'll do a little, we'll do a little sword drill tonight and go back and look at these passages very briefly as we go through here. And you can even underline, uh, the critical verses so that you can, and make a note. So we go to John 15. From there, we're going to go, go to Galatians 5.16. So you can put a little, a little note there. In John chapter 15, Jesus starts off talking about the fact that he is the vine and, uh, the Father's a vine dresser. And verse 2, he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And then if you skip down, you read in um, verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. So the sole and necessary condition for bearing fruit in, in John 15, 5 is what? It's abiding in Christ. If you anyone abides in if you abide in me, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. The sole necessary condition to bearing fruit is abiding in Christ. Okay, that's John fifteen five. Now in your margin there, you ought to put Galatians five sixteen, and we're going to turn over a few pages and books and epistles to Galatians. Galatians comes before Ephesians. After 2 Corinthians, Galatians 5.16. Galatians 5.16, Paul says, I say then, walk by means of the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In verse 22, he says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So what's the command here? Walk by the Spirit. What is a consequence of walking by the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit. So in Galatians 5, what is the necessary and sole 
condition for producing fruit. Walking by the Spirit. In John 15, it was abiding in Christ. Abide in me, and you'll bear much fruit. Galatians, it's walk by the Spirit, and the Spirit will produce fruit. Well, if producing fruit is a result of abiding in Christ and walking by the Spirit, then abiding in Christ and walking by the Spirit must be pretty close to the same thing. They must be related to each other, two sides of the same coin kind of thing. So Galatians 5.16 says that the necessary and sufficient cause for fruit production is walking by the Spirit. Therefore, point number three, abiding in Christ and walking by the Spirit must be equivalent. Now, that's really important to understand that. We've defined abiding in Christ and walking by the Spirit as, as roughly synonymous. They're equivalent concepts. So now let's, let's move on to look at another chapter. Turn over to your right to the next epistle, which is Ephesians, and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 starts off as the last three chapters of Ephesians covers. It talks about the Christian life under the metaphor of the Christian, the Christian walk. And Ephesians 4.1, it began, I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. A command to walk worthy presupposes that you cannot walk worthy. So what we have here is a bilateral situation. Either you're walking worthy or you're not walking worthy. John 15 presupposes that you can either abide in Christ or not abide in Christ. Galatians 5, you can either walk by the Spirit or not walk by the Spirit. These are presented as mutually exclusive options, okay? That's just an aside between point 3 and point 4. In Ephesians 5, 1, still in keeping with the theme of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, which is the Christian life under the metaphor of the Christian walk, in Galatians, I mean Ephesians 5, 2, we're told, walk in love. In Ephesians 5.8, we're told, walk as children of light. Now, Ephesians 5.8 is important because it says you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That's positional. But then the command is walk as children of light. That's experiential. We are, in terms of our identity as a new member of the body of Christ, as a member of the family of God, children of light. But we have to walk like we're our father's child. That implies that we can walk as if we are somebody else's child. We can walk as if we're not a member of the family of God. We can walk like we're the devil's seed. We can walk like we're the enemies of Christ. We can walk according to the flesh. And we can be just as evil and nasty and wicked as any unbeliever. In fact, we can probably do him one better because a lot of times we're rationalizing and saying, well, I just need to confess it and slate's white clean. So, a fourth point, Ephesians 5 says that we're to walk in love. Ephesians 5, 8 says we're to walk in the light. The result of this, because they're talking about the same thing, all these walks in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 are all talking about the same thing. If you look at Ephesians 5, 9, now I'm using the New King James Version, it says, 
coming out of verse 8, Walk as children of life, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Now, I believe that probably the original reading is fruit of the Spirit there. That's what's in the majority text. But some of the older manuscripts, a few of them, the Nestle-Lon text and the UBS text, omit light, I mean omit spirit, and it reads light. That's found in about three manuscripts, but because they're older in that theory, that should be the original. I think it's more consistent that it's the spirit. Uh, But either way, what we're talking about is when we walk as children of light, what is produced? Fruit. So let's put it together. What is the sole and necessary condition of producing fruit in John 15? Abiding. What's the sole and necessary condition for producing fruit in Galatians 5? Walking by the Spirit. What's the sole and necessary condition for producing fruit in Ephesians 5, 8? Walking in, by the, walking in the light. Walking as children of light. And a result of this has to do with fellowship. We see the word fellowship introduced in verse 11. We have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. But when we're walking in darkness, we do have fellowship with them. So again, we see a, bear, a, a, a distinction made between walking. If we're walking in the darkness, we're going to have fellowship with the, work, the, the works of the darkness, the children of darkness. If we're walking in light, then we're going to have fellowship with those who are walking in the light. That's going to be important because that, picks, that terminology is picked up by John in 1 John 1. So what we're seeing here is that Walking by the Spirit, this is point five, the equivalent terms are abiding in Christ, walking by the Spirit, walking in the light, and walking in love. Those are all basically describing the same thing, this unique spiritual life that we have in the church age, that we're either doing that or we're walking according to the, to the sin nature. Now, in the sixth point, in each of these passages, just to reiterate a I said this earlier, but I've got this in point six. In each of these passages, we're either walking by the Spirit or according to the flesh. We're walking in Romans 8. It's walking according to the Spirit or according to the flesh. We're either walking in the light or we're walking in darkness. We're either abiding or we're not. I think the most clear image is walking in the light. If you've ever been down in a deep cavern, I remember the first time I did this, I was probably 10 or 11 years old at Camp Pinal, and we went to Longhorn Caverns outside of Marble Falls. And we got down into one of those deep, deep caverns where you're, you're hundreds of yards down below the surface, and they turn off all the lights. See how dark it is. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. You can't see anything. It's just pitch black darkness. And then the guy struck a match, and you could see everything. A little bit of light dispels all the darkness. So you're either walking in darkness or you're walking in the light. A little bit of light dispels all the darkness. These are mutually exclusive. You don't have just a little bit of light. It it, it changes everything. So these, these, these metaphors that are used here are mutually exclusive. They're one or the other. Now let's look at Ephesians 5, 5 under point 7. Not the verse I wanted. Mistyped that. Uh, fi- uh, fi- 515. 
Ephesians 5.15. See then that you walk circumspectly. What do you say that walking circumspectly is synonymous with? Walking in the light, abiding in Christ, walking by the Spirit, walking in love, that's walking circumspectly. See then that you walk circumspectly, comma, not as fools, but as wise. So that means that walking circumspectly is walking wisely. That means it's mutually exclusive to walking like a fool. That makes sense. Think about Proverbs. You're either taking the path of wisdom or the path of the fool. You, you can't. There's not a middle path where one leg's wise and one leg's fo- on the foolish path. It's one or the other. Now, you may think, well, this is really simple. I've heard this all my life. Yes, but there are people who are listening who are getting great flashes of insight right now. And there are people who should be listening who should be getting great flashes, flashes of insight right now. Because this is so predominant in, in our evangelical world today to think that you can, we do things for mixed motives and there's no light or dark. This idea of being mutually exclusive as, as one New Testament theologian at Dallas Seminary said, it, it just borders on spiritual arrogance. Okay? But that's what the scripture says. It's one or the other. And those who abide in Christ, that's not something that is true of every believer. It is true of those who are walking by the Spirit. And yet there's one commentary, I mean, one Bible translation out there, the the New English translation, the NET Bible, that is produced almost, the New Testament almost exclusively by Dallas Seminary faculty at that particular time, and in one of the footnotes in in First John two, related to abiding, he says abiding is what every believer does. Uh, that it is spiritual arrogance to think that there's an elite group that abides and the others don't. That's the view that's out there, and that is a dominant view among evangelicals today. We're in the minority. I just don't see it. And I'm trying to take you through this to see the reasoning for this. Okay. So we either walk wise or we walk as fools. Verse 17, therefore don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And that takes us right into verse 18. The one who understands the will of the Lord is filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, the one who understands the will of the Lord contextually is the one who's walking circumspectly, walking in love, walking as a child of light. The one who is walking as a fool does not understand it and is not being filled by the Spirit. This is mutually exclusive. It's one or the other, A or B. Okay? So, that's point number eight. The wise person is filled by means of the Spirit, and the fool is not being filled by means of the Spirit. Now, I think it's very important to translate that correctly, being filled by means of the Spirit. The Spirit is not the content. We're not getting more Spirit. We're fully indwelt by the Spirit, the instant of salvation. But the Spirit is the one who fills us with something. Grammatically, this verse uses a, a the Greek in preposition plus, uh, plus the dative. That does not, that's not the way to express uh, content. Content is expressed through a genitive case. Now, if we look over Colossians 
chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The result of letting the word of Christ dwell in you is teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The result of being filled by means of the Spirit is the same thing, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So, if A produces C and B produces C, then A and B are related to one another. We've already had this, this syllogism once tonight. Okay? So, the, the one who fills us is the Holy Spirit, but what he fills us with is the Word of God. So, Ephesians tells us that we are to be filled by the Spirit with something, but doesn't tell us what the something is. Colossians 3.16 tells us that what we're being filled with is the Word of God. It's the Word of God and the Spirit of God that matures the child of God. There's no other way around it. So, point number eight, again, the wise person's filled by means of the Spirit. And when we compare Ephesians 5.18 with Colossians 3.16, we realize that it's the Word of God that we're filled with. Now, let's turn to 1 John. We've got three more quick points, and I think we'll get all this in tonight. 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Point number 9. 1 John 1, 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light. Now, that's a contrast to something in verse 7. We know it's a contrast because of that big but at the beginning of verse 7. Verse 6 says, if we say we have fellowship with him. Okay, now we're back to that fellowship idea, that, and that word was used in Ephesians 5. If we claim to have fellowship with God and we walk in darkness, if we claim I'm walking with, in fellowship with the Lord and we're, we're walking in darkness, we're not walking as a child of light, we're walking in darkness, then we lie and we don't practice the truth. We're, we're walking in darkness. So we can't be having fellowship with God. We can't be enjoying a relationship with God because God is light, verse 5, and in him is no darkness at all. So under point number 9, 1 John 1.7 says that when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with each other, and 1 John 1.6 says that that fellowship is also with God. So... The implication of verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Christ, Jesus Christ his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, a lot of people camp out on that verse and see, see, what cleanses us from sin is as long as we're walking in the light, we're automatically scrubbed by the blood of Christ. But if that's true, then why 1 John 1, 9 at all? Why say if we confess our sins, God will cleanse us of all unrighteousness? If we're walking by the Spirit and we're automatically scrubbed, clean, why confess our sins? Why even talk about it? Because the only answer to that, it seems to me, is that verse 7 is telling us what the basis is for the cleansing. It's the death of Christ. But the mechanics of realizing it is what's then iterated in verse 9, confessing our sin. If we're automatically cleansed, then why even mention confession? It would be, a, a, it would be irrelevant. So con for confession not to be irrelevant, it has to mean that that's how we realize the application of Christ's death 
when we have sinned and we're walking according to the sin nature, walking in darkness, not abiding in Christ, not walking, not walking in love. So, point number 10. 1 John 1, 8 says that if we claim to not have sin, in other words, if we deny our sin, the truth, John says, is not in us. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Therefore, we aren't walking in the truth. The person who denies sin isn't walking in the truth, isn't walking in the light, isn't abiding or walking in love, and therefore is walking in darkness. How do we recover how do we go from walking in darkness to walking in the light, walking uh, in hate to walking in love, not abiding to abiding? How do we move back? That's where 1 John 1, 9 comes in at the next point. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the 11th point is 1 John 1, 9 then tells us how we move from being out of fellowship to being in fellowship, walking in the darkness to walking in light, not abiding to abiding. That's how you put those passages together so that you draw a conclusion by comparing these different passages to see how they fit together. One of the big flaws that has developed in evangelical exegetical methodology in the last uh, 30 or 40 years is the idea that that you don't put these books together. You, you go through Ephesians and you study what Paul says to the Ephesians, but you don't correlate it to what John said in his epistle, which was probably to the Ephesians. And you don't correlate that to John 13 through 16. These books remain isolated entities. You teach the biblical theology within each book, but you don't go to the next level where you start integrating it by comparing Scripture with Scripture to come to theological conclusions, which is where application comes from. That's where you learn what it means when you're going to put the Bible into shoe leather. So we'll stop there. We just got to point six tonight, so that'll give me something to say when I get back from Connecticut. And we'll close in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of how your word fits together and how we, we shouldn't isolate the different parts of Scripture, but we should put them together, one with another, in order to understand the totality of what it is that you are teaching and help us to be consistent with your word consistent in our theology and that we can we can truly understand how to apply these things. Father, we continue to pray for our nation. We continue to pray for leaders. We pray that you would prevent those from getting into leadership place, positions that would harm this nation or endorse policies that would be destructive of our national security. And Father, we pray that you would uh, hinder those forces that continue to seek to promote human viewpoint and evil in this nation. And we pray for the city election in Houston coming up. We pray that we might all who are, who are voting in it vote and that this, this uh, evil ordinance, this Proposition 1, will be defeated. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.